Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's time for Tuesday Home Time. Jan Bartlett here until 6 tonight and a great big thank you to all my wonderful listeners who rang last week and all those who might ring in the future to make our radiothon pretty successful. We've still got a way to go, but it's looking good. Today, Australian nun Sister Patricia Fox wins an appeal to stay in the Philippines but faces another separate case. I'll be speaking to May Kotsakis from the Australia-Philippines Solidarity Association. A report back on human rights in Sri Lanka with Dr Brian Sinmaratna. News from the anti-war and independence movement with Shirley Winton and another Australian mining company, Unwelcome in a Developing Country, and this time it's Eritrea. I'll be speaking with three members of the Australian Eritrea community. But first, it's him, Mr Kevin Healy. Australian nun, Sister Patricia Fox, has been facing deportation from the Philippines. And that definitely is not Kevin. We'll put him on now. Caring business class party voted to privatise the ABC, that home of out-of-control radicals like Amanda Millstone, causing several ministers of state to choke over their single malt scotches. Get the cat back in the bag, denying there was any plan to flog auntie off, pointing out that just because it was party policy didn't mean it was party policy. Although big economic guru Scuttlebem Morlachson turned on his renowned wit, commenting that <laughs> many people must think the Socialist Party already owns it. <laughs> He's such a funny man, isn't he? A clue that just perhaps the caring business class lot might think it is a bit biased. There's no doubt about it. Lord Rupert's team and the other responsible media outlets ask good questions, they explained, and undertake responsible investigative journalism like exposing evil unions and workers rorting their caring employers and union bosses rorting super funds. If Lord Rupert owned the ABC, the balance would swing back to the sensible centre of the right, which is the right of the right, so to speak. But having said that, we have no intention of privatising the ABC, and that's a politician's word. So, listener, it looks like the ABC's in real trouble. Although I must admit I've never noticed this left bias which gives the usual suspects apoplexy. Although if the centre-right content it presents does give the usual suspects apoplexy, keep it up, ABC. If only we could invent a means of delivering 3CR subliminally to them as they sleep. The Minister for Friendly Unprobing Questions, Mitch Fye Field ABC Questions, said it would be impossible for the majority caring business class policy to ever, ever be implemented because the parliamentarians determine policy, leaving us to ponder why anyone other than parliamentarians bother to turn up at these party thingies, but... Mitch, we asked, what happens to the ever, ever bit if the party thingy majority became a parliamentary majority? Mitch asked whether we were from the ABC and declared he refused to answer biased questions. 
Lord Rupert wouldn't ask a silly question like that. So when he owns the A... No, no, sorry. We have no intention of privatising the ABC. On telecommunications, opera suckers handed public property for a pittance by the neoliberal nuclear hawk himself, world's greatest worst treasurer, poor government, to bring competition policy to the great level playing field of world's best practice into telecommunications, and hasn't that been a roaring success? Had all these subscribers forking out their hard-earned to enjoy all these World Cup matches, having a rollicking time staring at a blank screen? while those watching the public SBS broadcast were forced to watch the game, given they're allowed one game a day after opera suckers paid plenty to take the right for all games off them. Sadly, many of the suckers want their money back, fat chance, and today the public channel is broadcasting all games. Let's hope that doesn't destroy competition policy or destroy our faith in privatisation in the great corporate sector. Over in, and not quite in, the US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor kept yet another promise, this time to make Mexico pay for the wall. Although at the time we didn't realise he meant the Mexican people, et al., attempting to cross the trained killer wall, addressing the real problem. Mexicans. They keep having bloody children. If they didn't keep having children, there'd be no trouble. No Mexicans, no problems at the border. The train killer wall, illegally attempting to bring down US on society, similar to all those no proper papers, queue jumping, illegal boat people fleeing our invasions and other disasters, attempting to bring down true blue Aussie society. So we can empathise with poor Donald trying to prevent the destruction of his society. And it must be serious because we all recall how the US of led international anger, international distaste, indeed produced all the proof we needed at the cruel ripping off dear little children and precious babies from their parents by the evil that damn Hussein who was bristling with weapons of mass destruction, nuclear warheads, plotting to invade every country in the whole world which practices the critical freedom of capital, the freedom bit of liberty, freedom and democracy. And again, the US have produced all the proof we needed that there was barely a square metre of Iraq not bristling with and the US of and the freedom of capital world realised this proved that damn Hussein didn't believe those dear little babies were born in the image of the dear baby Jesus, making us realise even more how serious this Mexican invasion must be that the US of, which loves the dear baby Jesus, loves love thy neighbour as thyself, do unto others, that the US of must rip dear little children and precious babies from their parents, proving how evil these Mexicans are, and how evil their children and babies are. And like True Blue Aussie, Donald knows these people fleeing disaster, invasion, persecution are not fleeing disaster, invasion, persecution. Because if they were, they would be refugees and not illegal. But Donald and True Blue Aussie knows they are illegal no, they are illegal, and so illegal, they are now charged under criminal law with appropriate sentences like life without parole, or near enough to it, rather than civil law, which carried namby-pamby weak sentences like a slap on the wrist and being thrown back across the train killer wall. 
Paul Donald has so much on his plate, meeting with Rocket Man. Little Rocket Man. He's Little Rocket Man. I'm Big Rocket Man. Good, good. That was a great put-down, a great insult, calling that bloke with my funny haircut Rocket Man. A talkback shock jock laughed. It was not an insult. It was a term of endearment for my great close, close friend Kim, a strong leader like me. And we also share our deep humility. Good, good, wonderful. I also asked him to advise me how to keep the big supremo job in the family for generation after generation. Wonderful, good, great. Donald boasted he had extracted all these concessions from the good, good asterisk, asterisk for the time being, good, good North Korea. Uh, such as, Donald, he made the concession to allow me to make lots of concessions. Good, good, wonderful. Donald continued the business of corporate government by explaining how to make good, good, asterisk, North Korea great again, just like he is making the U.S. of great again. There's all that real estate, a whole country of real estate, condos, hotels, gold courses, oh, sorry, golf courses, the trample the poor condo, the trample the poor tower, the trample the poor golf resorts. The prospects are endless for world peace. Great, great. The commander-in-chief then thanked evil China for its role in facilitating the new deep friendship. I want to thank evil China, and what better way of expressing my sincerity and heartfelt thanks than slapping lots more tariffs so they can keep ripping off the U.S. off. Prompting evil China to slap more tariffs on Great Again U.S. of, particularly the bits of Great Again U.S. of that vote for Donald, clearly is backward as, although... Given the choice, anyway, prompting Donald to warn evil China that if it retaliated, it would be bad, bad. As he also warned G6 of the G7, they would feel his full wrath if they retaliated to his attacks on them. And to make matters worse, they had been a bit critical of his environmental policies, even though Donald knows there is no such thing as climate change, for instance. And anyway, his policy is part of making the US of great again by eliminating poverty. As a report just this week showed, his rescinding of air quality legislation would lead to a million or more deaths due to air non-quality. And we can be sure almost all those deaths would be the poor. So what thanks does Donald get? What credit for working to eliminate poverty? None. Well, none from the poor who won't be around thanks to Donald, although the great corporates do realise the contribution he's making and have thanked him profusely, showing they at least know all about making the US of great again. Finally, on one of those rare occasions when this segment is seriously serious, our sympathy to and our thoughts with long-term community activist Jeremy Dixon upon the rape and murder of his daughter Eurydice. Indeed, our thoughts with all her friends mourning this tragedy. Amid all the violence and murder of women, overwhelmingly by partners and people they know, it is the Jill Maher and Eurydice murders in recent years which have aroused such mass community response. Both women walking home from work, attacked randomly by men they never knew, and I suspect it's the randomness that so stirs the community, the it-could-have-been-any-of-us reality. 
Without satire, the immediate police sexist response, the responsibility lies with the victim, so encapsulates their archaic conservatism, only corrected as a PR exercise after public anger and disbelief. We can be sure the response would have been different if the victim had been a man randomly attacked by a woman. Our thoughts and sympathy, inadequate as they are in such circumstances, as Rosie Batty said, you never get over it, are with Jeremy and Eurydice's friends. Good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy. This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55am, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Australian nun Sister Patricia Fox has been facing deportation from the Philippines since April, following a, a personal order of the President Duterte. Late yesterday, she won her appeal to stay in the Philippines, with the Department of Justice admitting authorities erred in cancelling her visa. But the battle to stay and continue her work of more than 30 years is far from over, and her legal team has not yet dropped its guard, but are now optimistic that she will be able to stay at least until September, as she could still be facing deportation over a separate case. Yesterday, before the announcement, I spoke with May Kotsakis, one of the many supporters of Sister Pat, both in the Philippines and in Australia. May is a member of PASA. I asked her first about that group. PASA is Philippines-Australia Solidarity Association. Uh, This was um, formed in 2003. The objective of PASA is to address or to campaign also about um, various issues that affect both Australia and the Philippines. And membership of these are Filipinos as well as non-Filipinos. And we hold uh, meetings every first Friday in the Trades Hall, first Friday of the month. Are you also concerned about the Filipinos who come to Australia, especially the women? We do as well, we do. But we have other organizations that specifically address these issues and uh, pass uh, support, support the campaigns and support the organizations, which is uh, called uh, Gabriela Australia. And Gabriela Australia is the organization that address most of the issues that affect Filipino women, especially those that come here as partner migrants and come across problems such as uh, domestic violence. Okay, well the focus today is Sister Pat, Patricia Fox. What do you know about her work prior to her going to live in and work in the Philippines? Sister Pat was involved with with an organization here called Philippine Australian Solidarity Group. And these are this is a group uh, composed of mostly non-Filipinos which support the Filipinos' campaigns against the dictatorship of Marcos. This was during the 1980s, during the um, Marcos uh, regime. And Marcos put the Philippines under martial law. He also ruled the Philippines for 20 years. So uh, the campaign before was against, uh, mostly against human rights violation, as uh, plenty of Filipinos were harassed, uh, put in prison, 
tortured by the Marcos regime. So Sister Pat, while still here in Australia, she was a lawyer. She is a lawyer, actually, but she used to be a teacher. So she, um, because of her mission, as a part of her mission, she was able to, uh, you know, to engage with the Filipinos and then Filipinos supporting the Filipino struggle. What was the impetus for her to go and work and live in the Philippines? She went to the Philippines prior to her living there, and she knows about the struggle of the Filipinos, especially against human rights violations. When there was a, a mission from her congregation, which is the Our Lady of Zion congregation, she uh, preferred to work in the Philippines. And uh, there is also a branch of their congregation in the Philippines, Our Lady of Zion. So she went there in 1990 to do missionary work. What does missionary work mean? Oh, see, uh, well, Sister Pat actually was uh, you know, explaining what that she mean by missionary work, which is, she said that the gospel of Jesus Christ is to live with the with the poor, to to address their their concerns and to work in such a way that the, the society is changed so that these people will be you know these people's problem will be addressed. And um, as a missionary in the Philippines, she went to mostly countrysides. She worked with uh, farmers, with the indigenous people. At that time, since 1990, the issues were about mining, uh, large mining companies who are grabbing, land grabbing the uh, you know, properties, especially the indigenous land, for mining and also lagging you know, the uh, lumber, lumber companies, big lumber companies. So Sister Pat was exposed to the conditions of the farmers and the indigenous people in the countrysides. And she has lived with them, helped them. And she then understand the situations, the condition that these peoples are in, no matter who the president was since 1990 until now. So she, she was very much engaged with the poor people and with the campaigns and the struggle of the poor Filipinos. Over those 30 years, had she ever been into trouble with um, the government at all? There was no mention at all in all the documentations or the updates that I actually received. Most of the time, she actually lived in the Philippines for almost 28 years now because she went there in 1990. So she has been always engaged with uh, you know, working at the countryside. She also worked with the, you know, the um, sugarcane workers in Hacienda Luisita. I don't know if you have heard about that, Hacienda Luisita. That is a company that is owned by the former president, uh, Aquino. And in 2003, there was a massacre there. Plenty of, uh, you know, of, of workers were massacred by the government military because they were protesting uh, against the uh, abuses of you know, of uses of workers. So uh, Sister Pat worked with them as well. That's why she was very close to those workers. And when some of the protesting workers were actually, I think they were uh, detained, they were actually imprisoned, they were, <laughs> Sister Pat went with them. They won't leave them. 
she said that uh, you know that I won't leave unless you release them because she knows very well how brutal the military is. They can be tortured and uh, you know they can be harassed. Or... So that's how you know uh, part of her work is she you know, she uh, actually helped them you know with their with their campaign. She helped she introduce the workers and the farmers on different kinds of farm work. So she was very much, um, you know, hands-on. And when Duterte started his campaign of killing the poor? From the time that actually, uh, you know, I think just just three months after, because he said that that is his promise to rid the Philippines of crime, and um, he started the drug of noir. Actually, on his first year in office, there was already a report of more than 10,000 killed, mostly the poor. And also, just on suspicion, they are not even proven to be like drug boosters or just on suspicion. Then the police will just, you know, kill them like <laughs> killing, uh, you know, it's, um, they're treated like not human. This is among those that the Filipinos are campaigning, among the brutal human rights violation of this current uh, government. How did Sister Pat campaign against what was happening to these people? Because the Filipinos, you know, there is a continuous, continuous uh, campaign against uh, human rights, and there is a continuous campaign against the abuse and the exploitation of workers. And being with them, it's quite difficult not to, you know, not to participate in their sort of campaign, in their struggle. So Sister Pratt would give sort of education, would go with them when they are, you know, lobbying to the government. They would help them what, you know, what they're doing, like even writing letters and all that sort of thing. And uh, because Sister Pratt being a lawyer here in Australia would have a, a good experience in writing. So Sister Pat will be whatever the people are doing, which are all legal anyway, their rights, she would go with them. She is working like in Hacienda Luisita and the people will be protesting then Sister Pat would probably be supporting them. So campaigns, lobbying, writing letters, even writing petitions, uh, Sister Pat would be helping them. And, uh, we, and, and she knows very well that all of these are legal, the rights of the people to do. <laughs> so. so if she's been doing this work for nearly 30 years, it must have come to a great surprise to both her and her supporters that she was arrested. That's right. And she said that she, is not, she, she doesn't like even to be in public. So for almost, you know, for almost 30 years, we don't hear of Sister Pat. We know her because we have, there are Filipinos here that she used to work with. Uh, we have some members of our organization that used to be working in Hacienda Luisita and their lives are in danger. They were being targeted. So they came here in Australia. So they know very well Sister Pat. So Sister Pat every now and then will come. I think once a year she would come to Australia to attend their congregation. And in some cases we would ask her to be our speaker. So um, especially on the 
on the anniversary of the Hacienda Luisita massacre, which is November 16. So I think it was three years ago Sister Pat came, and uh, she was our speaker in that event. What was the circumstances of her arrest and detention? She participated in an international finding solidarity mission that went to Mindanao early this year. The objective of that mission was to to actually find the truth about the effect of the martial law. You know, Duterte declared uh, Mindanao, which is the southern part of the Philippines, under martial law since May 2017. So, and there was news of many human rights violations, harassment, especially of indigenous people. And uh, the stories are, they are being, you know, I mean, what you call that, there is a censorship of the story. So none of those even came out to Australia except through social media. And in the social media, there are, the Duterte regime has apparently hired, uh, what do you call them, uh, I forget the name. They they hired people to just uh, spread news that are not true in social media. So the mission went to Mindanao to really find out from the people on the ground what is the effect of martial law, and Sister Pat participated. And uh, they were able to, to interview a lot of people. They went to the countryside, and they heard a lot of these stories, and they see they saw actually the effect, you know, they saw the displacement of plenty of indigenous people who were actually, they are housed in some of the churches because the militarization of the countryside or militarization of their area, especially when there is a um, mining operation or there is any business like the dole or the plantation of the dole company or... So if there is any business operation in the area and they are expanding they are trying to grab the indigenous land so the the indigenous people uh, resist and many of these indigenous people have been educated because the actually uh, churches some of the churches including the RMP which is the rural missionaries of the Philippines where sister Pat who once became the coordinator they were uh, providing the indigenous people with materials so that they could build their schools. So many of the indigenous people already are educated, and the Duterte regime doesn't like it. So there is militarization, destroying the schools, bombing the areas where there is a school of indigenous people, and then displacing a lot of indigenous people. So they were able to interview them and to see for themselves the effect of the martial law. So when they return to, the, to Manila, that's when, you know, the, the 30 government um, arrested Sister Pat, well, arrested and detained in the Bureau of Immigration. It's said that Duterte himself ordered her arrest and detention. Why her, though? There must have been plenty of others who were doing that work, why was she targeted? There was others. There were others, apparently. I just I found out the, in some of the news that there were others who were also targeted. Uh, there was a priest, uh, I think an Anglican priest, who was deported to Europe. And there were others who were, which is not news 
well, it wasn't uh, actually uh, circulated. That was also not allowed in, in the Philippines. But Sister Pat would have a lot of knowledge. Living there for more than 27 years, she would have a lot of knowledge. And the deterioration is hell-bent. You know, he wants to stifle any freedom of press, he wants to keep this information from the international community. So maybe that's why he has targeted Sister Pat. And, and because of Sister Pat's knowledge as well, she was becoming popular with the Filipinos. She is invited to talk, you know. She, she was being invited to give speech in some, some event. And in that mission, Sister Pat was the only a Caucasian, non-Filipino. So maybe that's why she was she is being targeted, because he, he, you know she would, she would have authority to speak, and because she is not a Filipino, somehow she has the protection of the Australian government. So the Philippines is worried to touch her or like what the Philippine government does with Filipinos, like harass them, torture them, you know, put them in prison. So Sister Pat, they cannot do that to Sister Pat because Sister Pat is an Australian citizen. That's why they want her out. Philippine government want her out of the country. Because if she speaks, then she would speak with authority because she has been there. She knows. So they are worried over her stay in the Philippines. What was the reaction of the Australian government then and up till now? Actually, we don't, we don't hear any, you know, uh, but we knew that uh, when Sister Pat apparently was detained, uh, the Australian embassy in the Philippines sent a representative, you know, to see her condition. But I haven't heard. Maybe there are some sort of news or what, but I haven't heard any statement or any, you know, news from the Australian government. Well, apart from the Australian government, how would you assess the the reaction in both the Philippines and maybe in other countries as well to the treatment that she's been meted out? Oh, actually, there are lots of support from other countries. Even I think even the Pope has a statement regarding Sister Pat's, I mean, Sister Pat's uh, you know, treatment of the Philippine government. And, yeah, there are lots of uh, statements. There are lots of news internationally, actually. There are lots of news about Sister Pat. She became... <laughs> very popular. There was some Congress people in U.S. actually as well who made a motion or made a, a sort of a statement in support of Sister Pat. So they, she's gathering a lot of support. Her issue is, uh, you know, very popular now. So Also the impact of this on her these last couple of months? Well, she's unable to travel around. And also the Filipinos, her supporters in the Philippines are also sort of, of course, protecting her. Unlike before that, uh, she goes to countryside and all that. So she's still able to do that. Like uh, last week, she visited a place in the Philippines called Aurora. That's a province. That, that's where she has her first mission when she arrived in 1990. She lived there. She worked there. That is northeast of Manila, so maybe about six hours drive four to six hours drive. So they actually visited the province and they saw, you know, how the people there love her. That, that is where she 
open the eyes of the people in the countrysides of the status or the effects of the mining, how the mining companies are, you know, sort of actually abusing the and, and, and uh, depriving the people with their livelihood. Because the mining in the Philippines is very much destructive. <laughs> sort of, even if there is a law, but still, you know, it's very much destructive. Like the Australian mining company, like, you know, Yoshiana Gould. Sister Pat was an advocate of those people against the large-scale mining companies, the lagging, the land grabbing, the abuse of the workers. So, yeah, so uh, she can still travel, but uh, she, she was a bit... One of the effects that we saw is she became very... What do you call that? While she was quiet before, not speaking much, now she became very vocal. That sort of put her into the limelight and that sort of put the situations in the Philippines into the limelight, into the international, you know, international arena. I mean, the effects on the struggle of the Philippines is positive, but on Sister Pat, she seemed to be sort of rattled, but not much. She said that she cannot be silenced. What legal avenues are there to stop her deportation? Okay, um, two weeks ago, Sister Pat and her lawyer submitted a motion for a review of her case and an appeal to the Department of Justice. You know, so the Department of Justice replied promptly and gave uh, the Bureau of Immigration 10 days to review Sister Pat's case. But even less than 10 days, the Bureau of Immigration already replied, and there was no change to their position that Sister Pat is undesirable alien for participating in what they call political activities. Now, what they are waiting is the decision of the Department of Justice. So if the decision of the Department of Justice is negative, and that can actually come any time today, because the 10 days is uh, end today, uh, June 18. There is another option that they can, you know, um, they can either appeal to the president or appeal to the Supreme Court, because we know very well what will be the president's answer is. It is the president who actually wants Sister Pat out of the Philippines. So if they make an appeal to the president, well, they are expecting that the president will sort of deny it. So they can still appeal to the Supreme Court. And while that appeal is being held, she can't be deported? She can't be deported, yeah. While there is an appeal, she can't be deported. And in the meantime, there is a continuing of campaign, a lobbying, you know, gathering support, you know. Yeah, Sister Pat is, is determined to defy, to resist this uh, deportation order because... There is no legal basis, and besides, she and her supporters actually are worried that this will become precedent of other missionaries that come to the Philippines. Yes, I was going to finish by saying that what's the, the treatment that she's received is a, is a challenge to the role of what a missionary should be, yes, yes. but it's also a challenge to anyone who comes in solidarity with those struggling. It's a, a dangerous precedent. It is, yes. It is actually. It is a dangerous precedent, and uh, that's why they are determined to oppose this deportation. 
they are determined and they I don't think they will just quietly or accept it. So they are determined, the supporters of Sister Pat as well as Sister Pat are determined to take all avenues, all options actually to oppose this order, this deportation order. And it's so important because when people like that are removed from the situation, who looks after or who advocates for the people who are suffering under this regime? Exactly, yes, yes. Um, and that, uh, that this happens even under Marcos, uh, under Aquino. This happens actually under other presidents of, you know, deporting people who, who are vocal of the situations in the Philippines. And so this is not new, but it so happened that they targeted Sister Pat, who, you know, who has been in the Philippines for a very long time, and uh, she has done a lot of missionary work. She has helped a lot of people. So, and, uh, so, so um, you can expect a lot of support to Sister Pat, actually. Perhaps in one sense they picked the wrong person. <laughs> They pick their own person, but uh, to them, Sister Pat is a. They targeted Sister Pat because of what she knows, of what she, da, she did, like the missionary work that she did, which you know, which open, open up a lot of things that used to be not out in the open, like uh, you know, like what uh, what this um, what the government is doing, and um, I think the government is really determined as well while the support of the Sister Pat are determined to oppose this, uh, you know, order, the government is also determined to, you know, to, to deport Sister Pat. So it's, uh, you know, it's a... Um, but at the moment, apparently, because there is also a petition, a bill that was submitted by the progressive bloc in the Congress, the Makabayan bloc, they, they are the progressive congressmen, they submitted a bill to uh, provide or to give Sister Pat citizenship, Filipino citizenship. And at the next sitting of the Congress, they're going to discuss it. When I said maybe they've picked the wrong person, I meant possibly that they mightn't have realized the support that she has. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Mm. So, um, but, um, but the government is, I mean, the Turkey government is... Um, they don't care. I mean, the Duterte government, like, no matter what, especially the international community says, they just continue what they're doing. Look what they're doing to on the war on drugs, what they're doing to these indigenous, in this, especially in the South. There are lots of calls for them to respect their rights. But they, the, the militarization in the countryside, where military will occupy the school, will bomb the school, so there are lots of things that's happening there that the, the government just don't care of. Even the United Nations, isn't it? They have already, the UNHCR has already called the attention of Duterte and the, apparently, what is that, the minister, or is it the minister, or it is a, um, from the United Nations, representative from the United Nations, which was supposed to to come to the Philippines regarding this war on drugs, they are supposed to investigate, and the Duterte government didn't allow her in the Philippines. She was denied visa. This happened last year. I mean, uh, Duterte is, he does not listen to any authority except her, his own.
is it also the fact that he's supporting or a client of the US against China? He's actually both dealing with US as well as China. But uh, because he, he has a, a lot of dealings with China at the moment, that's why he is not very, he is not very, uh, you know, the, the occupation of China, of the South China Sea, which is a property owned by, supposed to be still a Philippine property. China is occupying that at the moment, and the third is, is not opposing it. He is not opposing, so he is dealing with both China and the U.S., but then U.S. has controlled the Philippines for a very long time until now. And the U.S. very much, the U.S. military pretty much controlled the Philippine military. So I think that the 30, he needs the military, the Philippine military. So he has to abide or he has to, I think, play with the, the U.S. as well. I've been speaking with May Kratzakis from the Australia-Philippine Solidarity Association. We've been talking about Australian nun Patricia Fox, Sister Patricia Fox, who's won an appeal to stay in the Philippines, but the 71-year-old nun remains under threat of deportation under a separate action that is still before the authorities and pending a decision. So the lobbying for her to stay there, where she's done such great work, is continuing. While the world's media and governments are silent on the situation in Sri Lanka, there are a few outlets at the grassroots continuing to expose the brutal and continuing suppression of the Tamils in the north and the east. One is 3CR with our Tamil programs, and here on Tuesday Home Time, I aim to keep people focused on what is happening and urge people to protest our government's cosy relationship with the government of Sri Lanka. And veteran human rights activist Brian Siniratna has the information. What I want to say is something very important. Australia can do what the hell it wants with asylum seekers, but one thing they can't do is to send them back. You cannot send a single asylum seeker or refugee back to Sri Lanka because of some information that I will give you which I had a couple of days ago. The UN Special Rapporteur on Torture and Cruel, Inhuman and Degrading Treatment and Punishment, Joan Mendez, M-E-N-D-E-Z, went to Sri Lanka and published a damning report on February the 18th, 2017. And I'm quoting from this report. The rapporteur urges the international community to stop returning Tamils to Sri Lanka, where they will be at risk of torture and other cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment and punishment. You can't put it more strongly than that. And as long as there is torture and degrading treatment going on in Sri Lanka, especially in the north and the east, you cannot return asylum seekers to that area without a gross violation of the UN Asylum Seeker Convention. It is as straight as that. I'm going to send a letter to the Australian, which I hope they will publish, but I want the Australian people to know that what the government is doing is illegal, unethical, and a violation of a UN Asylum Seeker Convention, which they have signed and ratified. Now, if they want to do what they are doing to asylum seekers, they'll have to first quit the Asylum Seeker Convention. After that, 
They can drown them, they can rape them, they can kill them, they can torture them. But until they do that, they have got to abide by the definition of a refugee, which I need hardly remind your listeners, is a person who, owing to a well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group or political organization, is outside the country of his nationality and is unable, owing to such fear, or unwilling to avail himself of the protection of that country. And that the Sri Lankan asylum seekers, especially the Tamils, have a right to be. And that has been backed by the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture as recently as February 2017. So, Mr. Prime Minister of Australia and whoever is advising him are on very shaky grounds. All you need, I was just telling my wife just a couple of minutes ago, is for one case, one of these people who have been sent back to appeal to the High Court, and the High Court will decide that it has, what has been done is illegal. Won't be surprised if the direct, the ruling is that Australian government pays for their return and pays compensation. Because what has been done is illegal and a violation of a UN convention that Australia has signed and ratified in, since 1971. There's no point in having asylum seeker or any other convention if you can violate it uh, as you please. Uh, if they do, then there's got to be a penalty. I'm writing a letter to the UN Human Rights uh, High Commission in Geneva saying before this is Prince Zaid uh, al-Hassan, that before he goes, he's got to table this complaint about Australia. Surely, Brian, Australian officials and politicians are well aware of that fact. Of course. Of course they are. It's not that they are unaware of the fact. They are also aware of the fact that the number of people who will be staring, like yourself and myself, are hardly there. You can count them on the fingers of one hand, and they know that. They know that we've, we are not likely to push this forward or to uh, try and get in the paper or whatever, or least of all, to take it to the uh, United Nations High Commissioner uh, for Refugees and the UN itself. I'm sending a letter to each of them saying, it is for me not to draw your attention to the uh, definition of a refugee, but to say that Australia has signed and ratified this in 1971 and is now in gross violation of the Convention. You take action. Is there any idea of how many Sri Lankans, Tamils, have been sent back illegally? Oh, hundreds. Is there any knowledge of what's happened to those people when they go back? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We, uh, I mean, this... That is a very interesting question. Now, I'll tell you what happened about 18 months ago, up to 18 months ago. They arrived in Colombo, and they were met by the police and taken to the police torture chamber, which is on the fourth floor of the Criminal Investigation Department, and tortured. Now, when news of that came to us, we started jumping up and down, saying, this is absurd, you can't do this. Then... 
Australia signed a secret agreement. A secret agreement, I mean secrets that nobody knows about it. And I heard about it quite by accident. That when Sri Lankan asylum seekers are sent back, could they kindly not torture them, greet them, and uh, welcome them, and then send them back to their homes in the north and the east, which they are doing. And, but on the way back, the same van that had dropped them drops in at the local uh, army headquarters and says, I've just deposited so-and-so in this village. And 48 hours later, the army visits them, and the guy is arrested and charged for leaving the country without permission. And from there onwards, the whole thing starts again. And the only way of getting out of their torture is to find money which they don't have. And until that time, the torture goes on. So everybody is happy. Sri Lanka is happy that there are no people leaving the country because whoever is sent out, Australia sends back. The army is happy because they're getting money. The only people who are not happy are the poor old asylum seekers who have sold everything they have to get to this country, running huge risks crossing the sea in unseaworthy boats. Uh, this is going on. The uh, rate of refusal of asylum seekers from Sri Lanka, which was about, what, 5% or so, as is now 90%. So 90% of those who apply from Sri Lanka for asylum in this country are being rejected. That is the highest percentage of any country in the world. And I got those statistics straight from the UN. But this is not only the refugees that are sent back from Australia. It's the boats that are apprehended on the high seas that are sent back. Well, if you come by air and overstay your visa, then you're all right. Nobody uh, nobody grumbles about that. That is racism because the people who come by air are almost always white and those who come by sea uh, are brown. But is there any evidence of how many small boats are sent back before they get anywhere near Australia? Well, uh, it's all secret. As you know, the Australian government will not even tell us whether the boat has come or not. So whether it's one boat or 25 boats, God only knows. Only the Australian government will know. And that they will not divulge. You know, this is secrecy which is unbecoming of this country. I'm going to uh, send the circular to all the expatriate Tamils. Which I, uh, I, know, I know many hundreds of them because I'm a member of the transnational government of Tamililam, and I can contact thousands. And I'm sending a circular letter that they should write to the Minister of Immigration and Ethnic Affairs here and Border Protection and say that what he is doing is illegal, immoral, and a violation of Asylum Seeker Convention. Is there still evidence that it's the armed forces or the Navy in Sri Lanka who are assisting these refugees to leave the country? Oh, yes. They're making money. Because the problem is that the poor fellows who are returning don't have any money. They have sold up everything to come here. So they are broke. But 
anybody else who has money, they pay the armed forces. You see, Sri Lanka is an island. To get to a asylum seeker, a people smuggling, people smuggler, you got to get out into the ocean. How on God's earth are you going to get out in the ocean when the country is surrounded by the Sri Lankan Navy? So unless the Navy is in it, there is no way that civilians can get from the, from the island to a boat that will ferry them across to Christmas Island or Cocos Island or wherever. Oh, it's a big money-making racket. The army has got to be paid, the navy has got to be paid, and without question, the local politicians and others have got to be paid. So the money is divided by the person who, uh, to whom you pay, and the person to whom you pay is a former member of the militant movement, not the uh, Liberation Tigers or Tamilism, but one of their co-workers who are now working with the government and making bucket loads of money. And this is all happening under the leadership of Sarasena. It's not happening just under the watch of Sarasena. That's what people say. But I've got information that it is worse, much worse. And I think it's going to deteriorate even further because Sarasena is not going to last the next election. At the next election, he'll be gone. And into his shoes will step in Gotabe Rajapaksa, a man who has a case to answer in crimes against humanity. And we might, I hope I die before that, because I don't want to see Gotabe Rajapaksa as president and Mahinda Rajapaksa as prime minister. And that is coming, that's for sure. There's a whole family of them. The whole lot, all 36 or 48 or 56 or whatever it is. I mean, when... Uh, Rajapaksa uh, quit. He, all his brothers, they were all in government, and some 38 members, and that number were escalating. It's a family dynasty, and that's all coming back. And being supported by China? Supported by China, by Japan, and the United States. They're all the same. It's the same old game. It's been going on for years except that when the Rajapaksa has come back, China will be back in a big way. They've already bought up half of Sri Lanka, and the rest of it will go too uh, once the Rajapaksa has returned. I think that Sri Lanka is a lost, lost cause. Financial situation is desperate. Uh, I mean, they are not broke. They are fat broke. I had the figure somewhere. I don't know whether I can find it, but... Uh, they are, they are in debt to the tune of billions of dollars, and they are now borrowing to repay the debt, and then they have to repay what they have just borrowed. It, it is the poor who have got to pay the price, and that is why it's so sad about it. I think there's going to be another revolution. It's not going to be the Singalese versus the Tamils. It is the Habs versus the have-nots. Have-nots are increasing by the day. Do you still have the right-wing Buddhist monks attacking the Muslim people? Oh, the, uh, the Buddhist monks, they have been the curse of Sri Lanka from day one. And they are getting actually more and more violent. There is the Bodhu Bula Seno or something like that, the Buddhist power force. There are a bunch of thugs in yellow robes or saffron robes and not-so-clean-shaven heads. 
They don't even shave their heads, as Buddha asked them to do. There's quite, you know, inch and a half of hair. Oh, they're, they're a bunch of crooks. My mother was a Buddhist, and I, I know I used to go to temple with her. They, they, they are the biggest curse that Sri Lanka has ever had from day one. It's one of them who actually shot the previous but one president, Chandrika Kumatunga, her father, was shot not by a Tamil tiger terrorist, but by a Buddhist monk who was later tried, convicted. The trial was carried out by Scotland Yard, and he was executed. Despite the fact that you couldn't execute people at that time, they brought in a special clause to execute this guy and hang him. What position do they play in the government or the armed forces? What position do they have? The, the right-wing... They virtually run the government. The right-wing Buddhist monks. They, they virtually run the government because they are, the government is so frightened of them. The head of the Buddhist power force, they threatened one of the ministers. And they went even to court and threatened the magistrate. When he found uh, one of the, the army fellows guilty of rape or something like that, went and threatened the, the magistrate. He said, you know, there is a contempt of court. They said, we don't care about your contempt. Uh, we decide what we want to do and we will do it. I mean, they are, they are just a bunch of thugs. What is there to look forward to, Brian? We can look forward to a failed state. We already have, I think, a failed state. Where the, if the income from the country is a quarter of the expenditure, where is the he country heading for? I mean, that is what uh, you talk of a failed state. Actually, I'm not normally a pessimist. For the first time in the, what, 70 years that I have campaigned for the Tamil people, I have become an absolute, total pessimist. Because to be an optimist at this point is being totally unrealistic. I mean, I'm trying not to be a pessimist because pessimism doesn't lead you anywhere. But at the same time, undue optimism also doesn't lead you anywhere. Uh, it, it's dreadful that I have to say all this in public, but you have to be honest. Because nobody else in Sri Lanka will talk like this because they will be locked up. And that's the reason why you can't go back home. I can't go back, and I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back to a miserable, murderous country where you can't walk around without the risk of being poisoned or tapped or taken to jail and uh, never to be seen again. I don't want to go to that country. I couldn't help being born in the country, but I can jolly well decide not to go to the country. And that's veteran human rights activist Dr. Brian Sinaratna. As he said, he's been fighting for the human rights of the Tamil people in his home country of Sri Lanka for 70 years. And they're the sort of interviews that you find on 3CR. And that's the reason if you haven't yet pledged your support for the station and for Tuesday Home Time, you could do that today or any time in the next week, 9419 I'm speaking now with Shirley Winton from IPAN, the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network, about the June edition of their publication, Voice. Shirley, there's only time to cover a, a limited number of topics that you have in your publication, but let's start with the meeting last week between 
Kim and Trump. Thousands of words have been written and voiced. How do you see the outcome? In the immediate term, in the most immediate term, I think anyway, that's my opinion, it should be viewed as a positive outcome for the people of the, on the Korean Peninsula who have been um, for 60 years in struggle for peace and, you know, removing US bases and more than 30,000 soldiers from the Korean Peninsula and also for the reunification of Korea. So in many ways it does strengthen their struggle for reunification. But realistically, has the United States long-term ambition on the Korean Peninsula, which is, you know, a, reg- a regime change in North Korea, and everyone sort of now pretty well aware that that's been the objective, has that been changed now? Are they no longer pursuing, is America no longer pursuing the regime change in North Korea? Well, highly unlikely. And in the context of rising economic and military power of China that's threatening to challenge the U.S. in the region, the U.S. is probably more more than ever wants to retain some sort of um, control over North Korea. Apart from the fact that it's, it has, you know, North Korea has rich resources, but also as Trump has sort of indicated, you know, it will be an open market, it will be a great market for probably building Trump Towers. But the North Korean nuclear weapons has been has been a deterrent to US aims for regime change. It's made it much more difficult for America to pursue that regime change. I think the, the North Koreans have probably learned from the situation in Iraq and Libya where the intent, you know, the regime change had been implemented after basically complying with the UN demands. And the US is continuing to push, and others and Western powers are continuing to push for a regime change in Iran and Syria. So, I don't know, how should we view the Singapore talks and the outcome? I mean, is it a tactic? Is that a soft tactic that's initiated by Trump to co-opt the... Democratic People's Republic of Korea into into the U.S. sphere of economic and political influence and control because the other threats just have not worked. And the Democratic People's Republic of Korea has obviously very cleverly left no other option for the U.S. but to pursue this goal. But having said that, the Democrat senators in the United States have blasted the talks and the joint statement claiming there was a very short on any details, which it was, it's true. But they're really outraged by Trump's announcement of suspension of US military exercises. Again, that's an indication that there are big divisions in the American ruling class. But the other aspect to Democrats taking that public position is that their outrage gives Trump administration a way out of the promise and switching back to military aggression. So Trump can always turn around and sort of say, well, you know, we, we made you the offerings of um, suspending exercises, military exercises, and you haven't done anything about, or you've done very little or not enough about dismantling of or getting rid of all your nuclear weapons. And it's hardly unlikely that you'd be crazy in this kind of situation for North Korea to get rid of all the nuclear weapons because it is a... It is a deterrent and has been a deterrent for them in recent history as well. So it could create, again, that could be a way out for for Trump administration and switching back to military aggression.
And the other interesting thing is the Australian government response, which really there hasn't been, mainly because I think that the American ruling class and the American, you know, the Democrats, the Republicans, and others are in such disarray about how to deal with these talks and how to interpret the talks and what to do about them. So all that Julie Bishop could comment on was urging um, the Western powers, the imperialist powers, to keep the foot on the North Korean throat, which is pretty, pretty aggressive. It's pretty outrageous, actually. But having said all that, the conditions for building the peace movement on the Korean Peninsula are favourable and uh, promoting peace. But I think that in terms of what the outcome of these talks are, I, I can't help but feel that it's a, it's a tactic or a strategy on the part of the, of the US and obviously on the part of North Korea. North Korea has tweeted them in many ways. But it's highly unlikely. I mean, the Trump administration and the, and the Democrats are all demanding the, the total dismantling of the, of, of the nuclear capacity of, of North Korea but also getting rid of biological and chemical warfare. So, you know, they're stepping up also the pressure on North Korea, and that could also be, be seen as a as creating conditions or, create, you know, sort of creating ground for future military incursion. Just looking at all the thousands, if not millions, of words that have been written over the last year or so, there seems to be no concern about the people of South Korea. Yeah. Well, there's no concern about either the people of North or South Korea and that any, you know, the provocations that um, the U.S. is embarking on, the, you know, the huge presence of the U.S. military in South Korea, the constant threat of war over both the, the people of North and South Korea, that's not an issue for them. I think the main issue for the U.S. is, um, is a regime change in North Korea and that's part of their strategy in, in Asia-Pacific to strengthen their hand. And South Korea is being treated as a U.S. colony. And yet, you know, the, the, the people of South Korea have a very, very strong movement for peace, for reunification, and of um, removing U.S. bases and troops from there. So in some ways, I think some of the comment, commentary was that, well, it does, does create some positive outcomes, the only immediate positive outcomes in the sense of that the threat of an imminent war is not hanging over the people of South Korea and North Korea. But long term, it, nothing really has changed that much. If we understand and if we look at the history of America's American activities, global activities, it's unlikely that the tiger has changed its spots. I think that um, America internally is much weaker, uh, economically is, is much weaker, and that's the driving force, uh, you know, for Trump um, when he talks about withdrawing American troops from around the world because their expenditure, their military expenditure, is enormous. And that's when he's calling on all the allies to basically step into and do the work for the U.S. to continue to promote the U.S. Um, foreign policies and act on behalf of the U.S. as their puppets which is the you know, expectation of Australia, countries like Australia and also Japan. But now we have the US forces in Australia in near Darwin. That's right. Well, we've got that uh, 2,500 US Marines based in Darwin in Robertson Barracks. And just going over it very quickly, just the history, is, uh, people might have 
probably aware in the the at the end of 2011, early 2012, when Obama and Hillary Clinton visited Australia and announced in in the Australian Parliament uh, there was the first public announcement of U.S. military pivot into Asia Pacific, which would see 60% of uh, U.S. global military forces and capabilities shifted to, into the area, into the our region, and Australia's role as basically as U.S agent or US deputy sheriff was quite considerably upgraded to the point that they would now include for the first time permanent stationing of um, two and a half thousand US Marines in Darwin and that's only as a, to start with that um, all the Australian military, you know, naval and air force facilities and bases around Australia were, were being upgraded and expanded to accommodate the US Forces that included U.S. nuclear submarines, um, U.S. bombers, fighter bombers. So now, for instance, in Darwin, the uh, Tyndall Air Base, an Australian, that's a, uh, one of the Australian um, air bases that's been upgraded and expanded and basically turned into, into a U.S. air base, the B-52 and B-1 U.S. fighter bombers are regularly stopping there refueling and they all have the capabilities of carrying nuclear weapons, nuclear bombs. Now questions have been asked about that whether whether they do carry you know, when they stop over in Australia, whether they carry those nuclear bombs and obviously the answer you know they, they will not deny nor nor um, nor admit. So it's obvious what they're doing at the Tyndall A base. So Australia's being turned virtually into into a U.S. base, a launching pad for the U.S. And the other aspect about Darwin and the U.S. Marines is people might have heard the recent announcement of um, U.S. Marines now being stationed permanently on HMAS Adelaide, which is an Australian Navy ship, as part of the war exercises in South China Sea. And the big, um, this is the quote coming from one of the press releases, the US press releases, that they are expeditionary forces trained to invade, capture and secure in the conflict in the region. So obviously, you know, Australia, we talked a lot about in the past about the integration and interoperability of Australia's so-called defence forces and facilities into the US military agendas. Part of that forced posture agreement between the government and the US, the government of the United States and Australia, which is part, you know, which is what's happening up in Darwin, the Marines in Darwin, is um, unimpeded access for United States forces and contractors to use areas and facilities for training, transit, support and various, whatever, refueling the aircraft. So they've got basically Darwin is, is, is a military base. People may also remember that when the announcement was made about the B-51 and B-52 bombers using the Tyndall Air Base on a regular basis, one of the colonels in, in the, the Pacific, US colonels uh, in charge of the Pacific, Asia Pacific, landed in Darwin and made an announcement saying, we love Australia and this is ideal conditions for our base for our military, for our Air Force. There's nothing here. 
it's it's much easier for us to conduct our activities and our training here than back at home. And it, it was, you know, I was echoing the terra nullius with the, the colonial invasion by Britain. That's the situation. I think that's fairly significant, the, the marines in, in Darwin and the Tyndall Air Base. In relation to that, sexual over since, I think it's since 2012, there's been quite a few cases of sexual assaults by U.S. Marines in Darwin, and it does reflect pretty much what's happening in all parts of the world where the U.S. US has its bases and its troops, and Okinawa is one of those obvious places where the, on a, uh, sometimes there's been um, media stories, reports of quite bad sexual, well, sexual assaults being committed in um, in Okinawa, but the, the the American soldiers are exempt from local laws, so they're not subject to criminal laws of Japan, and that applies to U.S. Marines around the world, and we understand that also applies in Australia, in Darwin, you know, in 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 relation to the recent assaults by the U.S. soldiers in Darwin. There have been, um, under the disclosure from Freedom of Information, it's been found that Northern Territory Police had commenced initial investigations into several cases of sexual assaults by US Marines. However, all these initial investigations had been dropped and handed over to the US authorities under the pressure from the US. Now, we understand, again, that in, in Darwin that the US Marines, US soldiers, are exempt from Australian laws, criminal laws, which is, which is a very, well, it's, it's quite ironical because the same, the, you know, this is happening at the same time when um, refugees are being denied a settlement in Australia and have to comply with every, every law, Australian law, and yet the US soldiers are exempt from these laws. There are no records on the outcome of these so-called investigations that are being held in, in, a, in over the assaults in Darwin either. There's actually, in fact, there was a, a one-page advertisement in the local newspaper hailing the, the U.S. Marines on R&R in, in Darwin and, and suggesting a welcoming hospitality by the people of Darwin, and which, included, which included advertisements for different bars where the U.S. Marines could be welcomed on their R and R. So that's pretty much very much is being promoted even, you know, by the the powers that be in Darwin and in Australia as well. I'm sure that the victims of their sexual assaults aren't cheering. I'm sure they're not. In fact there are two cases that were taken up by that were complaints that were made to the Northern Territory Police who undertook these investigations and then very quickly dropped uh, and these two complainants were told that they didn't have a case. And then there was another one that withdrew uh, after the inv investigations commenced. She suddenly withdrew her complaint. So that just gives you an indication of, of what's happening in Darwin. And of course it's not just US soldiers behaving badly, it's Australian soldiers. And you can imagine why. That's, they're trained to kill. They're yep. trained to and still fear on people, yep. and yet when it happens, everyone sort of throws their hands up and, how could this happen? 
and how could this happen, yeah. And that's the nature, isn't it? But that's the whole nature of, you know, of the nature and the core of an army of a country that's invading another country. That the whole purpose of the army of the army is to engage in wars of aggression, colonisation, occupations, inv- invasions of sovereign countries. So it's not just dysfunctional individuals or isolated incidences. It starts at the very top, and in, a, in an army and a country whose training is specifically for invasion and imperialist wars, where inevitably soldiers will be brutalised by the fact that they are suppressing and eliminating any opposition to the invading armies. So, of course, they're going to be in the front lines of resistance by the people of invading countries, of sovereign countries. And obviously, the search and destroy is, is is one of their key mantras. So the root cause of these crimes, you know, like the crimes that are committed in, in, in Darwin, but also the much broader crimes that recently have been made public by the uh, special forces in Afghanistan, they're, they're all the root cause of these crimes is, uh, is at the behest of our involvement in US wars. And it's nothing to do with defence and protecting Australia's people's safety. And you can sort of imagine the people that they choose to be these SAS soldiers mm. and commanders. Mm. Well, that's right, and they have to... Those commandos, they're bully boys. I mean, that's, that's where they are. And uh, they're thugs um, to start off with. And that's what the army is actually looking for, um, because that's the nature of an, uh, an invading army, of an occupying army. They need the bullies. They need the, you know, the, the thugs to implement their policies, basically, and their operations in an occupied country. And they're also stationed in Darwin. So that, that whole culture just emanates from what is Australian Army, what is the purpose of the Australian Army. Is it for defence of Australia and Australian people, and it, or is it an army for aggression and occupations and invasions and, and murders in other countries? And I don't think that just, you know, like... Uh, Giving counselling is, which is sort of the response from the army hierarchies, giving counselling to some of those individual SAS troops in Afghanistan, and even those who are committing sexual crimes um, in Darwin, but you know, sexual crimes committed by Australian soldiers in Australia. It's not just a matter of counselling. It's the whole culture of the army. The whole its core is precisely is aggression and is bullying and it's, it's about elimination of others. And A couple of issues at home here, the pressure increasing to get the ALP to make a decision as to whether they're going to support the UN ban on nuclear weapons. Yep. I can the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. They've uh, initiated a campaign to put pressure on the ALP to, in its policy, in its foreign policy, to include agreement, support or signing the treaty to abolish nuclear weapons. They've done a lot of work with um, ALP members. So ALP members, some of the ALP members have received literature, have received the wording of the treaty and also suggesting uh, an actual wording to amend the current ALP policy. And ICANN and other ALP members hoping that 
this policy could be amended at the national conference, at the ALP national conference. Now, my understanding is I went to an, an ALP branch meeting not long ago to talk about IPAN and the $3.8 billion on export of arms. And one of the issues that was raised on behalf of ICANN is the treaty to abolish nuclear weapons. And I got a sense that there was quite, quite a lot of support amongst rank-and-file members. But whether it would actually have would be a, or whether it will go any further for adoption at the, at the conference is, is another matter, I understand. There are a number of ALP politicians who have said that, you know, verbally have said, and some have actually signed a pledge to support the, you know, for the, uh, as individuals, not on behalf of the ALP, but as individuals, signed a pledge supporting the, the treaty, whether it's adopted it at the ALP national conference is still uncertain. But there is a lot of, in, among, in the public, and amongst ALP rank and file, there is support for it, undoubtedly. But as I said, ALP's foreign policy is no different to the, the government, the current government's policy. In fact, there are times that, um, that the ALP's spokespeople on foreign policy and defence have actually gone much further than even the current federal government is prepared to go with uh, all the way with the US. And there was evident with uh, Richard Miles, who was beating his chest uh, a few months ago and said, we're going to send Australian ships into the disputed, uh, South China disputed territory and uh, we're going to show the Chinese what we think of them. So pretty much him and I understand Penny Wong as well on foreign policy, they, they very much align themselves with the US and, and, and there's not much difference between them and the and the current government's foreign policy. And not much between them on the selling of weapons to overseas, becoming one of the major exporters of weapons. That's right, that's right. There's not much difference at all. In fact, there was a petition that was launched by calling on to suspend or to to terminate or to address, I can't exactly remember the wording, but to direct that $3.8 billion into public health education into developing um, sustainable manufacturing industries that provide you know environmentally sustainable jobs and permanent jobs it was initiated by a rank and file member of the ALP and where is it getting some support from ALP members who are very sympathetic I'm not sure whether how much traction it's actually getting I think that that 3.8 billion is being used by both the the federal government, the Turnbull government and also the opposition as a bit of propaganda of uh, job creation. And in fact, there aren't any, there's been very, very few jobs that will be created because in fact that $3.8 billion alone for export of weapons will mainly end up with the big multinational corporations that are now basing themselves in Australia. Not for the manufacture of those weapons because those weapons are being manufactured in in the US or in France, in the home countries of the multinationals. Not in Australia. Australia may get some small businesses, may get some little sobs, but it's, it's, uh, in Australia it's just going to be high-tech. There might be some jobs, you know, some work to do, some belts for, for planes or, you know, some you know, very 
non-labour intensive work. But it's been used to, you know, to make the our integration, Australia's integration into US global militarism, the military-industrial complex, to make it more acceptable because we're getting jobs out of it. And that's kind of connected with the Andrews government's announcement of the fishermen's spend being turned into a military, or well, he doesn't call it military, it's called the defence precinct where all the main multinational corporations like Honeywell, like Boeing, like Lockheed Martin, like BAE, will be based and in, in one precinct. And this is where they will be operating in promoting, in getting probably loans from that so-called Export Loans Agency. I'm speaking now with Shirley Winton from IPAN. Not really sure what happened there, but we started to have Shirley once again. Never mind, that was Shirley Winton from IPAN, and IPAN is the group that um, wants an independent Australia and a peaceful Australia and we hope that we will get it one day but it's a long way off yet I think the way that we're integrating ourselves via governments with the US and probably Europe as well. It's coming up to 24 minutes past five o'clock. We're hearing from some Eritrean activists from Perth in a moment just another big thank you to all the wonderful people who donated to the Radiothon last week. And um, if you haven't donated yet, please see if you can do that in the next little while. 9419 8377 or you can do it on air3cr.org.au. And um, go down to donations. And thank you so much to all those wonderful people who did donate. This is Captain Trash from the Port Phillip Echo Center in St. Kilder. Did you ever hear the crow in the sky going, Ah, ah, ah? That stands for reuse, reuse, recycle. And you heard it first on 3CR. We're all too familiar with the destructive behavior of Australian mining companies in developing countries. Witness Bougainville, El Salvador, PNG, Philippines and Brazil. But today the focus is on a Western Australian company, Danakali Limited, and its Collier Potash project in Eritrea, a country without a constitution and rights for their people. 27 years after the revolution was successful in 1991. The Danakali AGM was held recently in Perth, and Salah Abdurrahman attended with a proxy to put forward the concerns of the Eritrean people. I spoke with Salah and two other members of the Perth Eritrean community, Mohamed Brahim and Mohamed Amar, and these are the voices you will hear in this interview. Following the AGM to find out more about the nationwide opposition to this mine in their country. But first I'll read part of an article written in early 1992 about the long-fought struggle for revolution in Eritrea, which ended in 1991. When thousands of fighters of the Eritrean People's Liberation Front rolled into this Eritrean capital atop captured Soviet tanks on the 24th of May, 
jubilant citizens poured out of their homes to greet them. The crowds were so thick that they prevented the EPLF from catching panicking Ethiopian troops then fleeing out of the north city of Asmara. It was completely hysterical. Nobody bothered to lock their doors or wear shoes. Every resident was in the street. People were dancing a few metres away from the retreating Second Army as if they were in a dream, one Eritrean said afterwards. The people of Eritrea remained elated after the end of their 30-year war for independence. But the dancing is over and the torturous task of constructing Africa's newest nation-state out of the ashes of the continent's longest and most brutal armed conflict has begun in earnest. My first question to the Eritreans, speaking by phone from Perth, was to ask them about that conflict, why that struggle took so long. Okay, we can uh, speak for this uh, 30 years uh, struggle and why it is so long, because we face a very strong government that is Cuba, supported by the Haratification. Uh, this makes between the revolution and between them take time that our people, all our people are struggling under the revolution of the Eritrean Liberation Front. So the, the session was need time. The area of Eritrea must be covered to face the, the enemy of Tubia. This makes the struggle take this long time. Can I ask where you all were during those heady days of struggle? Did you take part in the struggle? Myself, yes. I took part. I joined the struggle in 1965 and remained there until 1973, struggling. So all the people of Eritrea were involved in the revolution. All. Starting from the age of 18 until the age of 60-70 years. So minutes all the people was under myself, as what I said, I was uh, involved and I was uh, one of the guerrilla fighting in the revolution. A very difficult struggle. Very difficult struggle because everything was from ourselves, from our people. No supporters from outside. We create everything to face this difficulty with ourselves. So the revolution, the struggle was very, very hard. Step by step, the country is need to have a very blast. The enemy we faced was very strong, supported by the alliance of the other countries like America and Israel and so on. Because we are insist to liberate our country, we made sacrifice everything. So everything was going really very hard. We scored the goal step by step around the 30 years, starting from 1961 to 1991. 1991, the fall of the government, the revolution was successful. What was left of the country? I imagine it was a very damaged country after all those years of war. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Eritrea 
got independent in 1991, uh, the result of 30 years of protracted war, you know, the whole infrastructure in Eritrea was destroyed. The civil service uh, institutions were all demolished. Eritreans have to start from scratch. Nothing was left. No institutions, no infrastructure. Everything was destroyed. 30 years of war. And it was brutal, you know, be it in the countryside or in the, in the cities. How did the people cope in such a situation with everything destroyed? The people of Eritrea, you know, I mean, uh, you can call it patriotism or uh, the suffering Eritreans endured was huge. Eritreans cling to the, I mean, uh, to the liberation movement as a whole. And they paid a sacrifice, which is which was extremely dear, and not only coping, you know, day-to-day life. In fact, they sacrificed with their sons and daughters. They start from scratch. They start from scratch. To Eritreans, that was not a problem. To Eritreans, Eritreans were ready to start from scratch and build their nation, you know, had they found a good starting point and a good system. Is it true that during those 30 years of war that there were actually a city underground where the people managed to have a sort of an underground government against the government that was in power and that someone like Fred Hollows used to go there and treat the people with the eye problems? Yes, the late Fred Hollows, one of the prominent Australian doctors, you know, Started working with the liberation movement. I think it was around the late 80s in the countryside where he established, you know, the eye clinic. At the time, the liberation movement had uh, underground, you know, hospitals. They, in fact, I mean, provided healthcare, healthcare service and the like. So Fred started, you know. I think it was in the late 80s, and then once Eritrea was liberated, you know, he established the clinic in in Asmara. How long was it before a government was formed after that end of that long war? And what government was it? Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, Eritrea got uh, liberated, you know, in May 1991. Once the Eritrean liberation, Eritrean People's Liberation Front came to Asmara, they formed a provisional government for two years. That is from 1991 to 1993. And in 1993, a referendum was held to ascertain, you know, and uh, get uh, full independence. So 1993, Eritrea got independence, full independence recognized by the United Nations. However, the provisional government stays there, and it is there to this day. To this day, the Eritrean government is known by a provisional government. No elections were held. We are in a state of limbo. So all those years, and there's never been an election? No, no election was done. The current government came as a provisional government in 1991, and the responsibilities given to the provisional government was to draft a constitution, prepare for election once the, once the referendum is completed. But 
nothing was done. It was drafted but uh, not implemented, and no elections were uh, held. And to this day, President Siasa Fork is in power. He came as a provisional, I mean, president, and still he's there. How did he get away with that? Because the people must have been so hungry for a proper government, proper services, proper judiciary, and all the things that go with that. How come he has been allowed to carry on like that all these years? I mean, if we look at the Eritrean armed struggle of 30 years in context, the aspirations and the longing for freedom was huge. The Eritreans uh, had trusted their leaders during the armed struggle. This could be due to patriotism or extreme nationalism, you know, because we fought against a huge army, Ethiopian army, which was supported by the West during Haile Selassie and then supported by the Soviets during the Nongust regime. So there was what you call overwhelming or extended trust toward the leadership. However, if you go back and see, I mean, the Eritrean People's Liberation Front, the way it operated, you know, it was an organization which was secretive. They didn't believe in democratic values. So people were fighting to get rid of Ethiopia, but never thought about what is going to happen once Eritrea is liberated. So there was the question of trust, extreme trust, you know, and patriotism. Plus, the EPLF, or the Eritrean People's Liberation Front, could not move from being a front to a government. So the way they operate till this day, it is the same way they used to operate during the armed struggle. So from my point of view, the trust, Eritreans put into these organizations was was a problem. We're now in 2018. What is the society in Eritrea now? What rights do the people have or do they have any rights at all? This is the one million question, you know, what rights in Eritrea? When we look at Eritrea today, you question uh, what happened to all those sacrifices around 7,000 souls perished, you know, during the armed struggle. Since the border war in, from 1997 to 2000 with Ethiopia, the whole dynamics of the country changed. Eritrea had one university, and that university was dismantled, dismantled and uh, simply because students started asking, asking about, I mean, simply human rights, you know. That university was dismantled and closed. Between 1993 and 1997, there, was, there were few, you know, outlets, media outlets, private media outlets, and those uh, media outlets were closed, and the reporters were imprisoned. This happened in 2001. So the border conflict between Eritrea and Ethiopia changed the whole dynamics, you know. There is no freedom of press. 2003, they started what they called national service, conscription to the army. So young people are taken, you know, and then conscribed in uh, military camps. 
they stay there for years and years in the name of uh, military service. They are enslaved, enslaved. And as a result of this, young Eritreans today flee simply because they cannot endure the hardship. Not all the hardships, but they see there is no future at all for them in Eritrea. So they leave Eritrea uh, in droves. If one looks at uh, what is happening today, around 4,000 Eritreans leave across the border to Ethiopia and Sudan. And many of those who cross to Sudan, they again continue their journey, journey towards Libya and across the Mediterranean and to Europe. Others move to Egypt and across Sinai to Israel. Many perish you know, in those deserts and the Mediterranean Sea. Now, the government in Eritrea described this as a pull factor, but it is simply a push factor. They cannot live in Eritrea because they see there is no future for them. You are listening to an interview with three members of the Perth Eritrean community speaking about their concerns about the Australian mining company Dalakali, their potash project in their country. What is the economy of Eritrea and, and what happens with issues such as education and health for the people? Well, uh, what can we say about the economy in Eritrea? You know, I mean, it's hard to talk about economy. Simply no one knows. No one talks about the fiscal budget the government has. They don't have fiscal budgets. They don't uh, have, you know, uh, programs. So people just live, you know, they just live in very rudimental way of life, very primitive. That's how it is. You've adequately set the scene for a country which isn't operating properly, hasn't operated properly as a country for many, many years. Yet you've got an Australian mining company coming in and proposing a mine. Tell us about that. How did this happen? Let me give you a brief overview of this mining company. This is a Kololai potash project. It's a joint venture company where 50% of the shares are being owned by the Dankalai. This is an Australian company, and the other 50 is owned by the Eritrean National Mining Company called Dinamco. The mining is estimated to have a production life of about 200 years, so this is a long-term plan and uh, they do uh, mining in mainly in fertilizers or potash. They, let me mention some key uh, shareholders of the company. 11.9% of the shareholders are owned by Chinese private equity company. 8.7% of the share owners are by JP Morgan. This is an American investment company. 6.6% of the shares are owned by Capital Group Global Fund, where this is a Canadian investment company. 3.9% of the shares are owned by the chairperson of the same company, Dankalai, Seamus Cornelis. 1.1% of the shares are held by or owned by the non-existent director of the same company, Paul Donaldson. This company is being processing in Eritrea for the last eight, nine years, and they have a long-term plan. They divided their plan into two phases. First phase is the first six years, 
And the second phase is the rest, which is uh, whatever is left out of those 200 years. It's a business that is going on in, in Eritrea. They are not the only companies which are operating in Eritrea. There are a couple of another uh, companies. One is a, a Chinese company, another is a Canadian company. So this is the brief history of, of the company and how they end up mining Eritrea. You managed to get into the AGM recently. How did that happen? The way we get into the AGM was I have to give uh, you know, the credit to the Socialist Alliance in Perth, and uh, I have to also mention and give my uh, gratitude to Ron, who is also an activist, and he is also a shareholder. So I, I entered to the, uh, to, the, to the meeting as a proxy, being represented by the shareholder, which is one guy, which I owe you know, a great gratitude. We had a lot of screening to come through, a lot of paperwork. You know, they don't let anyone to get into that. And, well, uh, we made it. We prepared our, our questions. We sat down, prepared uh, our questions that we think they would reflect uh, the general views of every Eritrean, our grievances, our concerns about this company being operating in Eritrea. So we prepared good questions, and then we also prepared another document which, he, which gives a brief overview of the whole history of Eritrea and a brief overview of human abuses about what is happening in Eritrea. So we did this and uh, we had about 100 copies of all these documents. We had to distribute them before everyone gets into the meeting and every shareholder you know, had the chance to get one copy. So I got into the meeting and uh, what was happening in there was they had few resolutions that they needed to discuss. But the main one was the management, where the executive officer of the company, Danny Bowman, presented the, uh, you know, the overall activities of the company in Eritrea, their production, their future plans, their profits, and all this business stuff. But uh, nothing came into the report concerning the, uh, you know, the human rights, uh, abuses of uh, Eritreans, whether the local communities were getting the dividends, you know, the right share. They didn't mention any of the sort of the conditions of, you know, of how those employees were being treated. This was the main, the main environment of the, of the meeting. Well, I got the chance to ask questions. Well, I have some questions that we prepared, actually, here as a group. One of the questions that I asked was that, Mr. Seamus, this is a shareholder of 3.9% of the whole company. This is a lot of money. Uh, well, he attended an event in Geneva in uh, 2018, March 2018, and uh, the event was under the name called Demystifying Eritrea. Well, he mentioned Eritrea in that meeting as one of the stable countries, one of the safest countries. Yet, you know, according to the uh, report by the United Nations Human Rights, by the UNHCR, which is uh, United Nations High Commission for Refugees, 22% of all refugees coming to Europe are Eritreans. So this puts Eritrean refugees to be second after Syria. So a stable country cannot export refugees of that magnitude. So that was the question being posed to Mr. Seamus, which is the chairperson of the board member. Unfortunately, he tried to whitewash the, the question, and uh, he said this is a highly uh, politically motivated report. 
we we had this, and the uh, the report does not also consider people who live inside the country. Yet, the Human Rights Commission they asked for permission to get into Eritrea to ask the views, but the Eritrean government rejected. So. This was his answer. He said this is simply political motivated and they are untrue. Yet, you know, we have a lot of credible resources such as United Nations Human Rights Commission. We have Human Rights Watch. We have the uh, Amnesty International. All this evidence cannot satisfy the board members. They are saying these are not true. They are fabricated. They are, you know, biased. They are highly politically motivated. So this was the answer that they gave into this question. Well, the other question was, look, we have a very special situation in Eritrea. Eritrea is one of the countries, we don't have a constitution, by the way. I don't know, maybe my colleagues mentioned this. We don't have a constitution. So in unconstitutional government, how is it possible to have a business there? What are the rules? How are you going to look after you know all these human rights issues if you don't have a constitution? So working in a country without consumption is a grave mistake. It has to be denounced and it has to be criminalized. That question was posed actually to the uh, executive chief officer, but uh, he said, you know, he's not going to answer that question uh, at that meeting. If I want an answer, I might ask him before the official meeting was finished, when everyone, you know, was left. But the simple answer was, you know, Eritrea doesn't have any constitution. Another question that is being posed to the board members was about, uh, you know, 8% of Eritrean people are agrarians, so we depend on agriculture for our daily consumption. And Dankalai is, you know, occupying, you know, a huge chunk of land. And the Eritrean government proclamation of number 58 uh, slash 1994 you know, they proclaim it that the Eritrean authorities have announced state ownership of land. So the land is being owned by the state. But this land, the local communities have a strong connection to, the, to their land. So they need to be compensated properly. They need to be considered. Their question is, should be considered seriously. They didn't talk nothing about this. They ignored this question, even though I asked the question. Well, eventually what happened is they heckled me. And they said, look, if you have any other questions, we're not ready to answer it here, but you can ask us after the minute, official meeting. Uh, but I got the chance then, you know, after the meeting, I had to ask them, chase them again. One question that I asked is, you know, why do you think all these, you know, Eritreans are leaving? You know, according to the United Nations report, 5,000 Eritreans are leaving every month. This is alarming, isn't it? It is very dangerous. But... What they said is, look, this is an African issue. Nothing unique in Eritrea. It is happening in Uganda, it's happening in Nigeria, it's happening in Sudan. So nothing special. Do you have another question? So you look at the justifications they are providing. You know, when something, okay, well, it's happening in Sudan. If something wrong is happening in Sudan, it has to happen in Eritrea. Is that a good justification? Well, let the people think about this. It looks like they are representative of the government, to be honest. And what I would say is to deny all these evidences, these explicit evidences, it has to be either delusional or a hypocrisy. These people, they are not normal, honestly, to be honest. I would like to come to conclusion in saying that there is no glory in kicking 
Eritrean people who are already suffering under the feet of dictatorship, please, please keep your hands, keep your business away until we constitutional government, a government that obeys uh, rule of law, uh, and so on. Thank you. What do you believe you achieved by going to that meeting? Yes, that's a good question. What what I believe I achieved by getting to that meeting is there are two achievements that we made. First of all, we shamed the administration and the board members. The information that we, we provided was not a new to them, uh, to the board members, I mean, but we shamed them. The second achievement that we, we get is we draw into the attention of the you know shareholders that something is going wrong in Eritrea. The dollars that is coming to the account is not right. There are moral issues, there are ethical issues, environmental issues that these people should consider when they involve. So these are the achievements that I would say we made. Did any of the other shareholders ask questions? During the meeting, everyone would be the, reading the materials that we distributed. I don't think they were even following what the chairperson was talking about. They were busy, they were shocked, you know, it was unexpected. They don't expect someone to get into that meeting of shareholders where everyone is expecting, you know, people to talk about the benefits, about having, owning big money. But the opposite happened, actually. The other achievement that I forgot to mention is, you know, Eritrea is a, a country, as I said, this is a country without a, a constitution. So a country without a constitution, how do you go there to do a business? What guarantees do you have? Things are unpredictable. If change happens in this government, who are you going to ask? On what basis? So these are questions that I would believe would talk to the shareholders. And to the worst, you know, Eritrea is not a signatory of any international multilinear dispute settlement organization, such as the International Center for Settlement of Investment, either. So there is no way, you know, to have, you know, a guaranteed business. So that I think they will ask, you know, they will ask twice before they can continue to invest in that company. And how will you and your friends follow up on this? We are following up. The, the idea is to raise the awareness of the Australian public and we trust that once we get to the Australian public, our voices, our grievances will be heard. Our message, you know, will get into its destination. Uh, I think we believe that Australia will help us in knocking, you know, some key doors, you know, to get into civic society organizations, into human rights organizations, into government, you know, MPs, whether it is local or federal. We are working intensively on this one. We are also working on knocking the doors of the mainstream media as well. So, yes, we're going to continue and we, we will update you for that for sure. Yeah, regarding the mining company, it was elaborated and uh, explained, you know, in detail by Salah. One thing I would like to bring to your attention is people who work in these mining companies are conscripts. Most of them are conscripts. Young people who are taken from their schools and sent to military camps, you know, the ones I mentioned, some of these are sent to this mining places, and that's why we refer to these people as enslaved. They are not paid properly. Their stay there is uh, open-ended. So that's one issue. The other issue that was mentioned by Salah is the indigenous people. 
these mining companies work on land owned by the indigenous people. These indigenous peoples are primordial in their system. Some are nomads, some are agriculturalists. They are removed, so these mining companies can take over their land instead of their land or the system or the government does not provide them with any alternative. These are indigenous people, you know, who have been there for thousands of years. So they remain destitute. They live in the fringes of these mining companies, and sometimes they serve as cheap laborers there. In fact, they are not skilled. So they do the most marginalized, menial jobs, and that's a big issue. Eventually, the indigenous people, as time goes on, they will vanish. That's a tragedy, really. The same thing is happening to the people, you know, whose land was taken by one of the Canadian companies. Our call to the Australian public is as follows. Dankala is an ISX-listed company. Therefore, it is incumbent for its policies, whether environmental, ethical, and moral standards to be properly scrutinized as whether they meet the Australian public standards or not. Thank you. I've been speaking with three members of the Perth Eritrean community, Salah Abdurrahman, Mohammed Rahim and Mohammed Omar, talking about the mine being set up in Eritrea, Dankalai, Perth Limited. Look it up and see if you can do a bit of research and spread a few words about what this mine is doing to the people of Eritrea. That's all I have for today. Thanks again to all the wonderful people who donated last week and make sure you get your money in and get your tax deductible receipts if you want one. And that's all I can say. Thanks very much. And I'll be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock. Bye for now.